She's a former sheriff's deputy. Started her career working undercover narcotics. Became one of the first females in her agency to become a member of the elite SWAT team. And then her career ended. She's now a lawyer and her passion is helping first responders achieve better mental health. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. There was social media, and then there was social audio. Now the Breakout app combines the best of both. Best of all, the Breakout app is free with versions for iPhone and Android devices. You can download the app for free at the App Store and Google Play, or you can download for free at www.letbreak.com. Calling us from Texas, we have Bridget Truxillo on the phone. Bridget is a former Alachua County, Florida Sheriff's Deputy. She's now an attorney. She's also a big advocate for first responders preventing mental health disasters and issues. And we'll let explain that a little bit later on. Bridget, first of all, thanks for your service. Secondly, thanks for being guest on Law Enforcement Today's show. Very much appreciated. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I love your show. For those who don't know where Alachua County is, Alachua County, Florida, is where Gainesville is, where University of Florida is. And it's about, I guess, say, is it fair to say about an hour and a half above Orlando and about an hour and a half from the Georgia state line, correct? About, yeah. Yeah, we're sort of, yeah. I call it, we called it North Central Florida or North it's called Central. North Central Florida, which people don't care about, but you got it. I was there. I did a morning radio show in Lake City, Florida for about five years. And I want to tell you something about North Central Florida. We had snowflakes my last year there. <laughs> it snowed. Oh, wow. It gets cold yeah. in the wintertime and really hot in the summer. So here's one it thing does. about Gainesville and Alachua County that people don't understand. You think nice college town, you think nice college county, all these great things. Some serial killers like Ted Bundy preyed on victims mm-hmm. in Gainesville. It is a no-joke mm-hmm. area. Uh, their law enforcement people are under, under tremendous stress all the time. That's correct. Yeah, um, and now my mind is blanking on. There's another serial killer. That took Henry, out was college. it Henry Lee Lucas or something like that? Uh, Rollins, something Rollins. I can't. Um, I, you know, the truth is, I don't I like giving. Remember, but the, I don't like giving them any publicity whatsoever. I don't even like giving their names out. I well, I, I agree with you because um, they don't deserve the, any type of notoriety. But this guy was interesting, and I remember it to this day as. Um, the apartments back in the day used to have, they used to open out, which meant that the hinges were on the outside of the door. And this guy would get into these apartments by knocking the, the hinge out and go in. And he killed several college girls before they could, number one, figure out. I mean, they figured that out, but they ended up being caught. But it was horrible. It was it was about 10 or 12 years before I was there. And I'll, I'll say I started, I moved to Gainesville in 93 for college. Um, but yeah, it's a legit town. We have an interstate running right through the middle of the county. So you have a lot of drug trafficking, like, you know, legit big time drug trafficking that comes through. So 
It, they, we have our fair share of crazies and, and problems in Alachua County and in Gainesville. And the yeah. thing about that, I never understood, and we, I don't want to belabor this point. There's Interstate 75 goes through mm-hmm. that county, and there's a stretch yeah. of Alachua County that, for the life of me, I don't understand. We have the worst right. fatal flaming car accidents where people are killed in mass. It happens all the time, and dead straight away, no reason whatsoever. It just happens. I agree. Some of the worst things I've ever pulled up on were accidents where, like, a, I remember one time it was a Suburban that had kids in it. They flipped out, and they were spread across the interstate, and I won't, I mean, it was awful. And then I remember one other time I got called to a scene where a tractor trailer had burst into flames, and everything, including the driver, had burned, and they called me to come pick up some of the bones that had been found in the dirt, and I had to wait there until the trooper came up. And this trooper, particular trooper is still there. He's the biggest, baddest dude I've ever known. And um, you could see him on TV because he's now the security for the Florida head, University of Florida head coach. You'll see him on the TV during wow. the games. He came up and he was so nice. But it was pitch dark at night. And all I could see was his headlights. And he, I mean, even him, I, I mean, I'm this little girl. I'll tell you, I'm 5'5", five, five, and I don't know what I weighed back then. But I, um, hopefully not that much different than now. <laughs> but... Um, he was like, guy, like came out of the night and he's like, oh my gosh, you're the cop I would ever want to back me up and come save me from something. But it was, it is, I don't know why the word, another time it was a, a a van load of, um, immigrants that had been doing some jobs around the area that had a horrible accident. I agree with you. It is, that was the worst call to get to say there's a wreck on interstate. And I just would always pray that a bunch of, um, the first responders, the EMS and fire trucks would get there before me because it was always horrific. It is horrific. And it's it's one of those things that, you know, people ask me, and I'll be quite honest with you, Bridget, I don't like talking about my police experience very much. Number one, we're kind of mm-hmm. conditioned. We don't talk about it. Uh, yep. The whole hero thing, and I'm just in the right place, right time, doing my job. But we're, we're, people are quick to criticize police, but we're, we're not quick to tell people all the great things that, that police do. When I say police, that means our sheriffs as well and and our federal agents. However, some of the worst tragedies, the most horrific traumas I experienced, I saw, were were not so much acts of violence. Well, they were big. They were a lot. And some were directed to me. It was the vehicle accidents. It was the house Mm -hmm. fires. It was all the things that are accidental. And those things just Mm -hmm. don't go away. Right. Right. I mean, and also the mental health issues. Um, I remember one of the very first calls I went on was a lady who was in Florida. It's called um, a Baker Act, where you get involuntarily committed for about 48 to 72 hours. And we got called. This lady was trying to get herself in. She was had a serious mental health issue, and she she was almost she was crazy. But I remember, I remember some of the stuff she said was funny, and but I'm not not like I wasn't laughing at her, but just some of the stuff she would say. And she said it to me and. But anyway, we got her in, um, and she got evaluated, and several months later, we got called to a suicide, and it was her. And, you know, that kind of stuff doesn't leave you, because you, you want to be able to right. do something, and you can't. And it just never, I mean, like I said, I'll never, ever forget. And then I remember distinctly her son, who had his own mental health issues, either from, you know, genetically, or because he lived with his mom, who had some, and you just... You know, and I, you just can't do enough about it, and that's and it never, ever, ever leaves. It's you. frustrating. We could talk mm-hmm. ad nauseum just about domestic violence calls. We could talk about oh, yeah. how, how we can't. You're, as a police officer, 
People think you got lots of power. You can do lots of great things. I had to learn later on in life. I'm not Superman. I'm not God. Mm -hmm. I can't make Mm -hmm. people do things they don't want to do, even if it's Mm -hmm. going to save their life. You cannot do it. Mm -hmm. You're totally right. A lady one time had had her cheekbone fractured by her husband, and we had to trick her into telling us where her husband was, and we ended up arresting him. And she physically attacked me when she found out that I had tricked, we had tricked her. And all I was doing was trying to hopefully save her life when she had two young kids. And it was, and I think it's hard for cops to not become desensitized to human beings um, because of that. You want to help them and then they're not helping themselves. And I think that's hard for most cops is you want to be able to care about people but then you just see this kind of stuff and they're just the repeat victims. And, and, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative way or, an, or in an unsensitive way. It's just, and I'd we'd get called to the same house where this woman's getting beaten up so many times and you want to help her, but she won't help herself. And you can't, right. like you say, you can't make them do anything. It's, and it's challenging. You know, some of these effects last a long time. I've retired more than 30 years. And just recently, my wife and I, my wife, the boss, and I were supposed to go to a <laughs> Santana and Earth, Wind, and Fire outdoor concert at amphitheater. And I had to ask her, no. I, I knew it could handle about two hours. That was about it. And then the heat, the crowds, people behind me, all that stuff. I, I just didn't want to be that guy. When we returned our conversation with Bridget Truxillo, former Alachua County Sheriff's Deputy, we're going to talk about working undercover narcotics. The really frightening things that you don't get to hear about. Her transition into SWAT. Why she became one of the first female SWAT members in her agency. And how all the pressure, stress, and trauma impacted her. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. And we'll return to our conversation in just a few moments. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Of all the radio stations in the United States, there's only one show like ours, the Law Enforcement Today radio show. And on Facebook, there's only one official page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. That's Law Enforcement Today radio show on Facebook. When you get there, click like and follow. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Return our conversation with Bridget Truxillo calling us from Texas. She is a former Alachua County Sheriff's Deputy. That's in Florida. Uh, She worked in patrol. She worked in undercover narcotics. We're going to talk about it in a moment. Transferred into and became one of the first females in her agency to become part of the elite SWAT team. Bridget, we could talk about the traumas, all the things you were talking about, and I could relate. Everything you were saying, I could relate to. Uh, Mm -hmm. But your career, let me ask you this. Did you have a calling, a vocation to go into law enforcement, or was it something you wanted to do for a long time, or you just stumbled onto it? Uh, well, nobody in my family that I'm aware of, I mean, way back, has ever been in law enforcement. So I was at the University of Florida getting ready to graduate. So it was not something that I had a long calling for. But I've always been somebody that I moved around a lot growing up. So I always sort of felt like the outsider and wanted to be the insider. And so I always took any type of injustices or meanness 
really hard or personal, which might sound strange because you're like, oh, we're on SWAT, you can take so much. But also that's what led me to that. And, and so I always had this where I, I feel like something that's wrong, even with my kids now, if I hear about something that's mean, I just think that that has to be addressed and fixed and solved and also makes being a cop challenging for all the reasons we just talked about because so much of it you can't fix or solve. But um, so I was getting ready to graduate University of Florida and didn't want to go into the field that I had was graduating in. And um, I joke around and say that I watched the movie G.I. Jane and thought it was cool. So I decided I'd go that that route, which is a joke because no disrespect to any Navy SEAL. That's not, that was not my direct, that was not my chosen path. Um, but I decided that I wanted to do something along that route to, to help. I'm a, you know, I believe strongly in the rule of law and the constitution. And I believe that you need people out there to helping to keep people safe. So I decided, I, and, and I wanted a job that would require me to be fit because fitness has always been something that's important to me. And I thought, well, even better if I have a job that makes me keep up with it. And so I thought I would do FBI or DEA, some federal route, and contacted them. And they told me at the time, like, basically, you're just too young. Go get some experience. And so I decided to get law enforcement experience and reached out to somebody I knew at the sheriff's office. And he recommended that I do a couple ride-alongs and see if that's something I wanted to do. And it was immediately a very eye-opening experience um, to see things like domestic violence victims or theft or, you know, go upon burglary calls or you know, an alarm goes off and you don't know if you're pulling up on, you know, a a robber with a gun or whatever. Um, But then I decided to do it anyway. So the week after I graduated the University of Florida, I started the police academy. Um, Ended up getting hired by the sheriff's office and paid through the academy, thankfully, because otherwise you're just worse than broke. Um, And it wasn't making great money, but it was better than nothing. Um, And then once I got into the sheriff's office, I just loved it. I couldn't believe that, you know, the power that comes along with the job always felt, I want to say heavy, but what I mean by that is I never took the power lightly. I I remember the very first time I pulled somebody over, my field training deputy, I said, oh my gosh, that guy ran a red light. Can I pull him over? And he said, I don't know. Can you? I was like, I don't know. I just want to pull him over here and and he's like, yes, you can go make the decision and do it. So I did. And I couldn't believe I had the power to pull somebody over, make them stop their car. And if they ran from me, I could chase. I mean, just all of it. Like, oh my gosh, this is it's it's significant. And so I always took it serious, but then I very quickly, because I still wanted to do federal law enforcement, wanted to get something just beyond patrol that would position me well for that. And I just really liked the idea of narcotics also because I didn't think I would, I thought it would take forever for me to become a detective. Um, And luckily they needed a female in the narcotics unit. So within my, the first year, I transitioned to the narcotics unit and the very first day I went and bought a crack, crack rock. And I'll tell you, I've never done a drug in my life. So it was quite a joke for me, uh, uh, shocking to me that anybody would sell me crack. But I spent the next three years basically buying crack for a living. Um, in did you, County, ever, which did you, you ever see yourself? Look, I'm going to go out there and buy crack. That's going to be my life, my life's ambition. <laughs> No way. I mean, I was saying, I didn't even know what it looked like. I, I mean, I'd never even smoked marijuana up to that point. I mean, of course, I knew what that looked like, but I'd never been in a crowd that did cocaine, or at least not in front of me, um, or any, you know, any other drug. And so I, I couldn't believe it. And I, but at the same time, 
the sheriff that we worked for gave us a lot of training. And so I felt like we got trained all the time and, and I, I felt, and you're just young and dumb, you know, when you're cut, when you first start out, I'm like, I'll be fine. I can handle this. Yeah. And then inevitably I'm, I'm six foot fine. tall and bulletproof. You were five foot five and bulletproof. Uh, nothing's going to stick to me. I'll be right. great. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh no, that bad stuff happens to other people. I'll be fine. I'll, I have the, I have the gear. I have the vest on every day. No, you know, I'll be fine. If, you know, no, I, you know, I'm not stupid. First of all, it's also not stupid enough to think at five foot five and one thirty or whatever I weighed to fight, think I could fight somebody on my own. I was very careful to, hey, even when I was on patrol. Here's the thing like, I learned always. early on, Bridget, size really doesn't matter. Some, some of the, and people like what's that young female gonna do i didn't care if you were six foot tall or five foot two if all you could do is grab a hand i'm in a brawl grab a hand one things Mm -hmm. we learned early on i was six foot 210 pounds benching 300 pounds i was in really great shape and Mm -hmm. uh i i had serious questions while i was physically tough to do this but they said no matter how big and bad you are there's always someone crazier or luckier they Mm -hmm. punch you on the button it's Mm -hmm. over they get you on the chin it's done yeah. You can't yeah. fight everybody. Uh, that's what backup no. is for. And that's what using your head is for. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that, that's where I think, um, I mean, no disrespect to all you or any other male that's ever done it out there, but I think that women in law enforcement, as long as you have the, your wits about you and you're just not stupid about it, is to, that you have different ways to try and handle things. Because and I was always very aware that fighting would be a bad choice for me. You have to if you have to, but that if I could, get, you know, go about other ways or stall for 10 minutes to get back up so that somebody wouldn't try and fight me or, you know, just make it a much calmer. And, you know, sometimes you have no control over that for so many reasons that you know of and anybody out there right. listen, listening knows of. But um, anyway, so I did narcotics. And then within, a, I think, with my first month of narcotics, they had an opening on SWAT team. And I just thought that would be the coolest physical challenge I could ever possibly do. I remember calling my dad and said, dad, you're never going to believe what I did today. And he said, what honey? And he said, I said, well, I tried out for SWAT team. And I thought he was going to say, Oh my gosh, I'm so proud of you. That's so amazing. You know, you're so strong and capable And my dad. No, my dad said, Oh my gosh, isn't it bad enough that you're on the narcotics unit? You're buying drugs for a living, honey. And he, I was so disappointed, but in hindsight, and now that I have three kids, I totally agree with him. Yeah, I, <laughs> so, I can kind of see the warning. And we're during our conversation with Bridget Turksilla. We'll touch on that. And we'll touch on what happened to her when she was a member of the elite SWAT team in Alachua County, Florida. And how it contributed to her the end of her career in law enforcement. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. We're going to take a short break. I promise you, we'll be right back. Missed an episode of Law Enforcement Today? You don't have to anymore, because now you can listen to it on Podopolo, the free new app that makes listening anytime, anywhere so easy. Catch up on shows you've missed and chat with John J. Wiley right there, too. Download for free on the Apple or Google Play stores. That's Podopolo. And John J. Wiley wants to hear from you inside Podopolo. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. Return to our conversation with Bridget Truxillo. Bridget is a former law enforcement officer from Alachua County, Florida. Now living in Texas, she's a lawyer. She is an advocate for mental health protection, resilience, the welfare of our first responders. 
Bridget, before we end the break, we're talking about you got a warning from your dad when he went to SWAT. It reminded me when I was a young police officer and I went to a family reunion in Long Island, New York, and I had a cousin, a couple cousins actually were in law enforcement in Long Island. And one said, Man, you work narcotics? What are you out of your mind? What are you doing? And I was being detailed to DEA a couple of years later. Uh, and, and he's like, There's too much ugliness, too much drama, too much trauma, too much crime, too many weapons. And it turns out mm-hmm. he was right. Uh, if I'd been smart, hindsight 2020, being 2020, I'd have stuck with patrol and stayed there. Probably had a longer career. I don't know. You know, I like to say hindsight's 2020. So you got the, mm-hmm. the conversation from your, from your dad, the warning about becoming a SWAT officer. What did he say? Well, if you just, yeah, it came from the other dad loving your child and wanting to keep your children safe, which I totally understand as a parent of three kids now. And also knowing I'll probably get it served back to me. I'm sure one of my kids will be too hard headed to know what's good for them. And I thought, oh, it's going to be fine. It won't happen to me meaning I won't get hurt, I will be safe, the job won't get to me, and boy, was I wrong. Um, so, I, you know, I did it. I made It took them about two months to put me onto the team because of what I found out later, which is that they didn't want me on the team. But ultimately, my captain forced them to. And so, yeah, November, about a year, so about a year and three months after I started at the sheriff's office, I was on the SWAT team with that's, a bunch of dudes. That's a short patrol that's a short career to go into SWAT and I'm not saying it to yep. be negative back in my day we called the, the SWAT team in Baltimore QRT quick response team and we generally mm-hmm. called them the hut hut guys they had crew cuts flat tops they were always running always mm-hmm. working out they're being paid to do this stuff we weren't mm-hmm. <laughs> we were out there hustling mm-hmm. calls um, so they, they had other jobs to do but they were constantly training and I imagine you were always training for the ultimate bad situation you hope would never occur for sure i mean especially being the only female on the team i knew i would have to be on all the time i would have to be able to keep up i would have to be able to you know climb whatever i need to climb or pull whatever i need to pull i mean the work the trout itself was repelling and shooting and running and um it's an obstacle course where you ended up having to a drag or I dragged a 170 pound dummy, which is not a heavy man. I mean, if you know, most men, I would say probably weigh more than 170 pounds, but they get this dummy from where it was into this SWAT van. I mean, it was, it, so of course I always had to be on and ultimately we're all human where no one's perfect any time you know, at any point in life. And so my regular human non-perfectness was written up every single time. So, I mean, but it ended up, you know, being the only female on the team, and maybe it would have been better if I was a six-foot female that, you know, could wrestle or something, but I'm not that. And so it it definitely was, I was always the sore thumb, basically, at the end of it. One of the questions I have for you is, in police work, there's a tremendous amount of stress. And people ask me to describe it. And I say it's like uh, seven hours of sheer boredom, followed by... Mm-hmm. Two minutes of fight for your life, adrenaline dump, whether you actually fight or not. And you may go back down to sheer boredom and then back. And where we worked, it was that that roller coaster was up and down all the time. We had shootings mm-hmm. every shift. We had murders uh, almost on a daily basis. Um, it, it was nonstop. You go from having a cup of coffee, throwing it out the window. It's like this is a life or death situation. 
Mm-hmm. The thing with SWAT is you always have to train, in my opinion, and I'm as an outsider looking in, you always have to train for the bad situation. Always be prepared. I was always, looking back now, hypervigilant, always aware of my surroundings. Still mm-hmm. am. Even, mm-hmm. remember I told you about the concert? Still am. It's uncomfortable. However, SWAT has got to be like the pressure cooker. It is. And um, I, I may have mentioned this to you earlier, but there our narcotics unit, we were a smaller agency, so we, we were called a part-time SWAT team. So um, we would, or a call-out team. So we were, most of the SWAT team members were also on the narcotics unit. And we, we had an undercover side and a uniform side. So between the two units, that made up most of the SWAT team. And so we were always doing one or the other. And so when we weren't buying drugs or so we had what we called buy walks and buy bus. So the buy walks is you buy, buy, buy in our County. We had to buy three times before we could get a search warrant for a home or you do the buy bus, which is you drive up, buy from somebody, give the call sign and then the uniform guys sweep in and, and arrest them. And so we were doing that all the time. And, and so you think that one minute I'm doing, okay, buy walk by, and then I'm the one doing a lot of the undercover because I'm a female and, Typically, they just didn't suspect the female was ever being a cop, or even right. if they did suspect, they sold it to me anyway. And you know, a lot of those times, it'd be me buying this gun with this guy. One time, it had a rifle right sitting in the corner right next to him as I'm buying, I think it was crack. I don't remember now. But I definitely remember the rifle being right next to him. And I had to do this three times by myself in a rural area where my backup had to stay far away because there weren't enough cars around to get, really get close. And and then, you know, getting the search warrant for it. And the search warrant process is kind of long and dull. And you're writing this stuff and taking it to attorney. And, and then the next moment, we're gearing up and we're prepping the SWAT team and we're running in, blazing and guns and SWAT vehicles. And this, and, then, and, then, and then you're wrapping up and you, hopefully nobody's going to shoot at you, which thankfully they didn't, you know. And so it is a lot of, like, mundane leading up to the holy, you know, uh-huh. SH bleep T were, you know, so, or then the call outs where we had, you know, doing our job and then we'd go home and we'd go to sleep. And an hour later we get a call out because there's a guy who's high on meth shooting a rifle out into his neighborhood. And if you don't know what the difference between the rounds is a rifle round, doesn't goes through almost anything, but like concrete right. and versus a handgun round will get stopped. And so this guy's shooting a rifle around in the neighborhood and we have to go stop it. You know, and you're like, holy this is what this is what we do. This is we go in to face a rifle round so that we can save the people in the neighborhood. And thankfully, we got he he survived. He ended up I don't know I can't remember how what he did. He stopped shooting and we got in before he started shooting again. So it, you know everybody was okay and nobody died, which is always a good day. And then you have so to yeah. find a way to unwind, become rigid again. Oh yeah, yeah, and. Being a female and all that, unwind to be Bridget, which is a female. So I go in, I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to wear makeup and I'm not going to buy shoes with pink on it because I don't want anybody to like, it's even more obvious that I'm a girl. Like looking back on that, I'm like, that. Yeah. Just put the body You are who you shoes. are, right? Wear the makeup. They're going to make, <laughs> they're going to have issues with me anyway. But I was like, nope, I'm not going to wear, I didn't wear makeup for years after that. I'm telling you, I went to law school and at the end of law school, I'm like, oh, wait a second, I can wear makeup now. And so, I mean, I, it, it, it was impi- so many ways to come, like you said, the hypervigilance of you want to go home at the end of the day. And yes, I was young and dumb thinking, oh, it'll never happen to me. But I wasn't dumb enough to think that, I mean, I saw this bad stuff all the time and think people die when you least expect it. And I don't want it to be me. And then to come home and try and be a girlfriend 
again. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a roller coaster. I sure. have this this saying, and the only way I can really describe it was, I was married uh, at the time when my career was ending. Uh, it was a highlight of my life, and I used to have this psychological thing I did, where uh, when I was pulling off the Velcro from my soft body armor, I thought I was transitioning from Cop J to husband mm-hmm. Jay and father Jay. And for a long mm-hmm. time, to be honest with you, Bridget, I did fairly well with it. It was a great tool. It was like his mental undressing and going through this process mm-hmm. of trying to transition until it didn't mm-hmm. work anymore. And I couldn't I couldn't pull off enough Velcro to be dad Jay and husband Jay. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. was, I was the guy who was sitting in the Lazy Boy chair drinking himself and didn't want to talk to anybody uh, until I passed mm-hmm. out. That was... That was what I became. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. We're going to turn to our conversation with Bridget Chuxillo in just a few moments. There is some startling stuff heading your way. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Imagine if you were one of the first on social media or on social audio apps. Here's your chance to be one of the first on the free breakout app that combines the best of social audio and social media. Get it at letbreak.com. There's a free version for your iPhone and Android devices. Be sure to follow John J. Wiley of the Law Enforcement Today Radio Show and Podcast. Use a profile at LET Radio Show. Get it for free at letbreak.com or at the App Store and Google Play. Law Enforcement Today Show, return a conversation with Bridget Truxillo. Bridget is a very interesting person with an interesting backstory. She is a former Elijah County, Florida Sheriff's Deputy, worked patrol, undercover narcotics, SWAT team member, left law enforcement, which we'll talk about in a moment. She's now a lawyer, and she is passionate, which she'll talk about, about helping first responders and law enforcement in particular with their mental health, preparedness, protection, resiliency, all that stuff. Bridget, I know a little bit about your story. I don't know the details. There came a point when you're working SWAT, you just said, I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. The breaking point. Was there an incident where life was different before or after? Or is this just accumulation where you're like, I just can't do this anymore? Yes, there was a, a distinct tipping point. Um, like I said, I was always you know, the the girl. And I just kept thinking, as long as I can show them I can do it, it they'll get over it. As long as I can show them I can be a good operator, it, that will matter. And even, I mean, we are SWAT team, and they still do now, and I'm still proud of them, that they compete in SWAT Roundup International, which is in Orlando every year. It's an amazing event where SWAT teams from around the world come to compete. And I competed in that. We had a competition within our own team to see who would make the SWAT Roundup team. I made it twice um, the two years, two falls that I was there for it, and which means I beat out some of my own guys to make the SWAT Roundup team. And then I competed you know, internationally with other teams, and we placed in the top 20 out of 76 teams, um, the top 10 and then the top or 20 and then the top 10. Um, so we, you know, I showed them I could do all this physical competition, the shooting, I could do it all. And then it ultimately didn't matter. And along the way, there were three separate incidents. I won't, I'll never forget the last one where my SWAT commander, they one time said, oh, well, you're only on this team because my, our captain made you, made me put you on. And I, you know, blew it off. I'm like, okay, well, I'll prove to him that won't matter. And That's my attitude too. Yeah. I'll show you. Look, I will I, I'll show, show you. you. Yeah. 
And then finally, I remember he and I were working out in the gym, which is, you know, I think a testament. Like, he and I are the only ones in there in this very nice gym our sheriff got together for us. And I'm working out. I was the only one ever in there with him. And he said to me, I don't know how it came up, but I remember him saying again, well, the only reason you're on this team is because the captain made me put you on. And I remember turning around and looking at him saying, you know, Lieutenant, I heard you the first two times. And I turned around. I just, I refused, like, I wanted to walk out. I wanted to slam a door. I wanted to say, you know, just whatever. But I was like, nope, I am not going to let him get to me. I'm going to stay in here. I'm going to finish my workout. And I, <laughs> I it was awful. And, I, and not long after that, I went to him and said, look, just, I had always, was always getting written up and I don't want to belabor that point. But finally I went to him one day, I saw something that one of the other guys did where if I had done it, I mean, it was, it was, it was egregious. It was bad. And if I had done it, I would have just been 500 mountain climbers written up six months for whatever. So I went to him and I was like, look, I don't want better treatment. I just want equal treatment. He's like, what are you talking about? So I didn't say who it was. And I kind of just tried to give like a generic example of what I'd seen well, it turns out he went to my whole team and told them I was trying to rat out my fellow SWAT mate, teammate, who was also my sergeant on the narcotics unit, which I never did. I just was saying, just treat me equally. That's it. So after I had done that undercover buy where the guy was holding the right, you know, had the rifle right next to him the whole time, I found out later that when we were on our way to execute that search warrant, that the, the guys in the SWAT van, like I always, I got to drive the equipment van. They never let me be on the entry team. The guys that were on the entry team in the armored SWAT vehicle were talking about how I was rat and a snitch to, of my own teammates. And when I found that out about a month later, I was just crushed. This was after I had competed in two SWAT roundups after I had just, okay, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. And finally, like, you know what? Okay. You okay? And I just decided it was really hard. And I'll tell you, Jay, it took me. I didn't even want to. By that point, I didn't want to tell people I was a cop. I didn't want to tell people I was in narcotics. I didn't want to tell people I was on SWAT because it's just changed. It just was too hard in too many ways. They people expect. I don't know what they would expect from me. I couldn't date because when they found that out, it just went oh, wrong. Yeah. Like I didn't want anybody that was dating to know I was doing that because like I'm still a girl, a human. And I just had this really unique job, but uh, people, with, um, people, I had the same I, experience I, with, with similar with dating before I married my first wife. However, mm-hmm. I can only imagine the pressure much be must be much more intense for females because of all the stereotypes that go along with that. And mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. get it; I really do. I, I want to ask you this question: For many of us who worked in law enforcement, the trauma you experienced on the street, the fear, all those things come with the territory, the physical injuries, Mm -hmm. all those things. Many of the things that were, uh, for lack of better words, mental welfare crushing was the politics Mm -hmm. of the department. Is that fair Mm -hmm. to say is what happened to you? A hundred percent. I mean, it got to the point at the end where my, like my captain pulled me in one time and said, is there anything you want me to want to want me to want to tell me? And I was like, I just, at first I was like, what do you mean? I thought I was in trouble again. And, and then I realized, cause he was, you know, he's the one that made them put me on the team. He's, he was a big proponent of having, bringing some females into law enforcement, adding people with college degrees to, cause I think that helps expand people's view of the world to hopefully help them make better decisions. And he asked me again and I, you know, like three times. And finally I was like, Oh, he, he, they were giving me such a hard time. He wanted to know if I wanted to make a complaint. And I was uh-huh. like, Nope, I I'm good. One of the things that we would do do. is, and and you didn't have this option, 
and and be fair or not doesn't matter. Some of the best police I worked with were female. I'll, I'll just say it right now. And some of the biggest cowards I've worked with were the biggest, burliest, most muscular guys. So the stereotypes mm-hmm. and the way people view people is not fair. It's not accurate. Mm-hmm. I want. So I totally agree. Yeah, I, I wanted to, to to just transition. So you, you made the decision to leave law enforcement. And what I was getting at was, look, if I had a real dispute with a coworker, another officer, even a, uh, someone superior, it's difficult when they were a sergeant and I was a police officer, or they're a lieutenant and I'm a sergeant. However, if it came to it, there were many disputes that were settled in the parking lot of the district station house. The guys would go out there mm-hmm. in the garage and fight, and, and they'd be settled. That's mm-hmm. the reality of how it was way back in the day. You didn't have that option. So you decided Mm-mm. to leave law enforcement no, you're right. I, because I, what I realized during that time, you know, I'm like leaving. I found out about them calling me a snitch. I was at a, a law enforcement party and and I couldn't stay. I left and I was in tears. I, I almost couldn't drive. I was like so crushed. And and then I, I walked in my captain's office the next week and I said, "You know what? You're right. Take me off SWAT. Take me off narcotics right now." I knew at that point I was going to go to. Law, I was leaving to go to law school. I had taken the LSAT and I, I was going to be leaving a couple, you know, three months later. And he did. He immediately moved me. And I was like, and I want day shift. I'm tired of working nights. Put me on day shift. <laughs> so he did. And next week I got day shift and I was off swatting narcotics. And that was, you talk about going from 60 to zero. I mean, I, I, that, so I, anyway, I, um, he became a lawyer, so, which in itself is no small yeah, task. I knew I was going to do it. And because also when I was going through that, when I decided, ultimately decided to go to law enforcement, I mean, uh, leave law enforcement is because I thought I wanted to do federal law enforcement. And then what I realized, because I was on the narcotics unit, I had worked with federal investigators, you know, because a lot of times you'll escalate cases to the state or the feds. And I realized that the issues I was facing were not going to go away. If anything, they would just be attacked. And no offense to anyone out there at state or fed level is that the issues to me would just become attached to bigger egos. And I just didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. So now you're a lawyer. And in addition to... I decided I was like... Yeah, I'm going to become a lawyer and had no idea what I want to do with it, but always knew, in spite of what everything I went through, I always knew I wanted to give back to cops because I want them to be happy and I want them to stay in the job and I wanted to give back somehow. And what are you doing? How are you doing that? So fast forward 13 or 14 years later, um, I finally figured out that the best way for me to do that was to start my own business. It's called Protective Wellness and and I have my own law firm to where I can provide wellness training and legal support to cops in all the ways that I felt like I didn't have when I was a deputy. And so do you have a website where people ago. can get more information, sign up for email newsletters, all that sort of stuff? Absolutely. So my law, my website is called myprotectivewellness.com. And you can definitely sign up for a the newsletter. The cool thing is I have a quiz on there that if you're curious, like, you know, well, what's my wellness level? It's a quiz that you could take that will help you figure out what your wellness level is. And then that gets you onto my newsletter. And, um, and then I created, like you said, Jay, earlier that you thought you were fine for a long time until you were not. And I hear that. I know you have too, but I hear that from people across the country. And so I created just this one specific course to help people figure out what to do about it and figure out how to come up with their own wellness training awesome. plan. And what is your website? Um, one more time and social media before we yeah, end it. It's myprotectivewellness.com. And I'm on, the best places to find me are on LinkedIn and Instagram. 
Congratulations. And Anybody Bridget, that wants thanks to so much for being guest on the Law Enforcement Today show. All very much appreciated. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.